This past week, my two daughters passed their driver's test. And that was clearly good news. May not be good news for you. (laughs) Clear the road, that's right. And they even passed on their first attempt, unlike their dad. Sometimes the good news can be on a larger scale. The medical test that you're worried about come back negative. The job that you're hoping for promotion comes through. That good news is a game changer, isn't it? It's wonderful. Sometimes the good news is an even greater scale. This past week I was reading stories about 75 years ago when news broke that World War II officially was going to end. All over the nation, people celebrated. New York City was the biggest of all. Two million people packed into a 10-block radius. The victory roar, it was reported, lasted for 20 minutes when the news was announced. Wow. Bible teacher R.C. Sproul related his experience as a six-year-old boy living in Chicago. He was in the middle of a stickball game in the neighborhood when all of a sudden there was this huge eruption and people were celebrating and there was great jubilee. People were streaming out of buildings. Women were pounding with wooden spoons on pots and pans, making a huge noise. Everybody was celebrating. There was so much excitement. Sproul was a little bit unhappy because his stickball game got interrupted. But all that changed when his mother ran over to him, looked him at his, at his face with tears running down her face, and told him the war was over and that his dad would be coming home. No more death, no more casualties, no more split families. What good news! Just something about good news. Amen? Amen. Similarly, in our passage today from the book of Isaiah, God gives some long-awaited good news. It was good news for the time of Isaiah, and it's so powerful that it has lasting impact for us today. This year has been a challenging year, as we have noted. Good time for good news. The old country song used to say, we sure could use a little good news today. Well, I don't have a little good news for you. I have a lot of good news for you. And this good news, I hope, will refresh your bones all the way down to your spirit. Amen? Amen. So please let me invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 40. As you're turning there, it's just important to note, we're making a very important transition in the book of Isaiah. The first half of Isaiah, chapters 1 to 39, really focus on the threat of judgment and invasion from the kingdom of Assyria. And throughout these chapters, Isaiah has been warning his people that this was part of the covenant that you made with God, that if you rebelled toward God with sin and idolatry, that God would send judgment upon you and it even might result in exile. And so Isaiah has been calling the nation back to the Lord and His covenant. And so we, see, we have seen how this warning was being played out, right? The northern kingdom of, of, of Israel had already been 
taken captive and basically obliterated by Assyria. We saw last week in chapter 37 that God decided to spare Judah by that miraculous deliverance. You remember that from last week? So that was Isaiah 37. But then we come to Isaiah 39, and Isaiah drops this bombshell upon Hezekiah that yes, you know what? The nation is going to go into exile in the future. Not in your day, but in the future. So exile was coming. And so now we cross this chasm, so to speak, over into the second half of Isaiah and picking up in Isaiah chapter 40 where this big shift occurs, where Isaiah shifts perspective from the, from the, the warning and the threat of exile and judgment, and now he's writing from the perspective of exile is going to happen, but God is going to bring forgiveness and restoration to you. This is the good news in a sense that we have been waiting for all throughout the book of Isaiah and for all of these decades and centuries even, God has not done yet with His people. He is going to give them good news. And this passage in Isaiah chapter 40 as it launches into the second half of the book really acts kind of like a prologue, an introduction to all that remains in the book of Isaiah. It foreshadows what's going to come up, and it gives us some very important themes that are going to run all the way through the rest of Isaiah. And I want you to notice that one of those key themes is this idea of exodus, of exodus, the great deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Isaiah, as other Old, prophets, Old Testament prophets do, they use this great event in the history of Israel and they apply it to what he is going to do in the future. There's going to be a new exodus for the people of God. And not only does it, is it going to happen in Old Testament days, but as the New Testament comes along and Jesus and his disciples begin their ministry and understand the fulfillment of Scripture, they recognize that what is taking place with Jesus' day is the fulfillment of that new exodus that Isaiah spoke of hundreds of years earlier. Church, your minds are going to be just kind of blown away as you see how all of these amazing promises fit together. And you see how Scripture fits together that God has one plan of redemption that He's just unfolding throughout the ages. And it's all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Very powerful. So if you're there with me in Isaiah chapter 40, the first part of our passage is God commissions His messengers. God commissions His messengers. Isaiah chapter 40 Verses 1 to 2 read these familiar words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is really fascinating. To begin, the words comfort, comfort are actually commands. God commands that His people be comforted. And interestingly, those commands are in the plural. In other words, God is telling more than one person to comfort his people. You say, well, who is God speaking to? Well, some say it's Isaiah, and perhaps the people that were hearing Isaiah relate this message. And that's a possibility. But what I believe is going on here is that God is speaking to his heavenly counsel. 
Remember back in Isaiah chapter 6 where the, the Lord gives this incredible vision to Isaiah and he sees the Lord. And who does he also see? The seraphim, this, these angelic beings surrounding the Lord. We know from other passages that God has this heavenly angelic council that surrounds him. And so a prophet in the Old Testament was somebody who stood in the presence of the counsel of the Lord and waited to hear and to speak on behalf of the Lord to his people. So for example, in Jeremiah 23, the Lord warns about false prophets. He says in verse 18, for who, has, for who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? The Lord goes on to say in verse 22, if they, speaking of these false prophets, if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. So in Isaiah, I believe what's going on here is that God commands his heavenly counsel to provide comfort to Israel. We're going to see that unfold as three different messengers, three different voices speak words of comfort to the nation of Israel. Now you saw there that God wants his counsel to, the counsel to inform his people that her warfare is ended, that her inequity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. You say, what does that mean? What God is saying there is, look, the season of judgment is over. You were warned about exile, about being punished for your sin and idolatry. They were sent off to Babylon for 70 years in exile. But that day has ended, and now the time of judgment is over with. Okay, So that season of judgment is ended, and now is a time for restoration for the people of God. By the way, just to clarify... When, when he says that about par, uh, double, God was not excessively punishing them. He wasn't giving them two times what they deserved. In the Hebrew, it says the double, meaning that their punishment was the mirror of their uh, wrongdoing. In other words, it was like a twin or a double, a mirror image. What they deserved was double in a sense. It was the exact duplicate of what they what they received there, okay? So the, what they deserved is what God had given out to them. He wasn't being unfair or unjust in his dealings with them. So that is the Lord saying there, comfort, comfort, I want you to comfort my people, right? He's telling this, this angelic council, I want you to comfort my people. God is intricately involved in our lives and he wants us to be comforted, amen? And he's given these words that we're going to hear so after God commands this, the first messenger uh, declares the message here, and that is the revelation of the glory of God. Verses 3 to 5 says, A voice cries in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the deserts a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the messenger commands that the wilderness be prepared for the entrance of God. You better get this road cleared off, right? I mean, if you have a king going through a highway, you don't want the king to get stuck in a ditch, right? And have to be calling AAA to get the king out. Wouldn't be such a great thing. 
But in this case, we see something that AAA is not going to be able to help with, right? How are you supposed to get this road ready? We've got to lift up all the valleys and lower all the mountains. Not going to be able to do that, right? This is obviously not something that's literally done. It's a figure of speech to say, look, something extraordinary needs to happen here to get the way ready for God to come in. And he talks about how the the glory of God is going to be revealed, meaning his presence, his power is going to be on display. The presence of God, which remember uh, when when the temple was destroyed and all that, and Ezekiel will see the presence of God left the temple. Well, God is going to return to his people. And he's not just going to be seen among them, but the Bible says he's going to receive the all flesh, all peoples. You say, well, how would this comfort God's people, this message here? They'd be comforted to know that God wasn't done with his people. Despite all of that, I mean, can you imagine the centuries of just rebellion and rebellion and rebellion? We get so frustrated when people annoy us for a few seconds. God had been watching and observing and experienced this rebellion for centuries, but he wasn't done with them, and he had a new work that he had in store in mind. And so they would be comforted by what he had in mind. The second messenger declares the permanence of the word of God. Isaiah 46 to 8 says, A voice cries, a voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We just sang that, didn't we? Just right out of the Bible. So the messenger, this angelic messenger, tells Isaiah to cry out. And Isaiah says, what am I supposed to say? A very simple but profound point. Grass is impermanent. It withers, right? My yard's being very biblical this year. It's browner than it's been in a long time. It's impermanent. It withers. And we are like grass. We last longer than grass. But our lives go by very quickly, don't they? There's a universal sentiment. It's funny, knowing that I was preaching this week, I've heard this throughout the week several times. Life goes by so fast. Where does the time go? Right? So fast! I mentioned how my kids passed their driver's test this past week. But in my mind, it was yesterday that they were born. 17 years ago. What? How'd that happen? But yet, even going beyond that, it seems like yesterday that I was taking my driver's test 30 plus years ago and failed. (laughs) But I remember that like yesterday. Our lives are impermanent. But the word of the Lord stands forever. It is permanent. That's why we're talking about it 2,700 years later. (laughs) Going deep into the passage because it has that power and that relevance. You say, well, how would this be a word of comfort to God's people to know that His word stands forever? They'd be comforted to know that the word of God and all the promises that it contains will stand. You can bank on these things. Amen? So church... Scripture is like nothing else. 
It's just a treasure chest of all of these truths about God and how He wants us to live. That's why we need to read it and to study it. He's getting fired up out there. For some of us, we need to make Bible reading a greater priority in our lives. We spend a lot of time studying things that have little eternal value. Sports, cars, stock markets, fashion, etc., etc. God wants us to have an interest in things. He wants us to enjoy the world He has made. So the problem isn't so much that we study those things too much, but it's we study the Word of God too little. For the vast majority of us, we have enough intellect to be able to open up the Bible and start plowing through and to understand the messages that God wants us to have. It is written at a level that the simplest person can read it. It drowns the greatest theologians. It's so deep. But yet every person can read the Word of God and be changed and transformed by it. Every Christian should have a strong commitment to Scripture. It is a lie of the devil to think somehow that it is optional to have a passion for the Word of God in the Christian life. We need a passion for the Word of God. I was struck recently reading about a man uh, named Mozavar who lived in Egypt. Formerly, he was a radical Muslim. He attacked churches. He persecuted Christians. He would burn their property and so forth. His Muslim leader, what they call a mullah, assigned him to read the Bible because he wanted him to attack and, and other Christians' arguments. Bad move by the mullah there. Because he starts reading the Gospel of Matthew and he becomes entranced with who Jesus is. He becomes a Christian and starts devouring Scripture. His brothers noticed the changes in him, and took him to a mental institution so that he could experience shock treatments and lay aside these Christian ideas like loving your enemies. Undeterred, though, Mosafar would take his Bible into the bathroom and memorize Scripture, tear the pages out, eat them so that they could not be found. He literally was devouring Scripture. That's a passion, though, for the permanent Word of God. Amen? Third messenger declares the tender might of God. Isaiah 40, verses 9 to 11 says, Go on, on, on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will gather them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So God tells the messenger to tell the people, go up on that mountain so everybody can hear that there's good news. You say, well, what's the good news? They're going to behold God. He's going to come with might. The arm in Scripture is a symbol of power. God's going to come with great might. He's going to bring reward for those who are obviously following His Word and obeying His Word. But amazingly, He uses His might with tenderness. Isn't that powerful? 
those same mighty arms are used as a shepherd to gather up the sheep. These sheep, these people, these exiles would have been wounded. They would have been weary. And God doesn't just leave them behind. But he goes and he himself gathers them up. Brings them to the promised land. What an image, isn't it? I hope that's how you see God. As both mighty and tender. You say, well, how would this message comfort God's people? God is almighty. And he's going to use that power to bring his people back just as he promised. And he's going to restore them. Now, as I said, this passage is crucial for the rest of Isaiah. It's a prologue. It sets the stage for everything that's going to follow. And he mentions some of these key themes. As I said, he mentions this idea of the exodus. Just as a reminder, the exodus was the, uh, the event in the book of Exodus where God delivered the nation of Israel with this dramatic, powerful deliverance from their bondage in Egypt. He sent the ten plagues, right? Pharaoh just kept being hard-hearted, but finally he relented. And so then God brings them out. Where do they go through? They go through the Red Sea, right? God parts the waters. He sends them through the wilderness. He cares for them all the way through the wilderness. And then he brings them into the promised land. And so the Exodus really was, if you want to read your Bible, the Exodus was the defining moment for the people of Israel. And it appears all throughout the Old Testament. And, God, and the, these prophets will take that imagery and say, okay, God's going to do something new in the days ahead. So here in this passage, Isaiah uses Exodus imagery. Did you notice that? There's this highway going through the wilderness. God protects his people as they go. So Israel's future deliverance is going to be similar in ways as it was with Egypt and when God delivered them. Let me just give you another example. It's all over the book of Isaiah the rest of the way. But here's an example. Isaiah 43, 16 to 21 say, Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. So he's talking about the Exodus there, right? Everybody tracking? Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. So you see that Exodus imagery, right? They're passing through the waters. God is preparing this highway. He's giving them water out in the desert to drink. And you get the idea that it's even going to be better than it was the first time. Because when they passed through the wilderness the first time, it was very dry. And God might give them water on occasion. But now he's talking about, look, there's going to be rivers of water all over the place. So was this new Exodus fulfilled? It's a good question, right? Was this fulfilled? It was. It was fulfilled in two ways. The first way occurred when Israel did return from Babylon. When the time of 70 years was up, as, as Jeremiah predicted, then God, you know what he did? He stirs up the Persian king named Cyrus to send him back. It's incredible. This Persian king out of the blue just says, okay, I want you to go back. And not only are you going to go back, but I'm going to pay for you to go back. And I'm going to pay for your temple to be rebuilt. 
That's pretty cool, isn't it? But Isaiah's like, yeah, you said that, Jeremiah, but I, I got one other here for you as well. Um, actually, the Lord revealed to me that the man's name is Cyrus, and he told that to me 150 years before Cyrus ever does this. Isaiah 44:28 again, 150 years before Cyrus ever does anything, says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. So God brings back his people. Powerful, isn't it? But there's still a problem. The people still gravitated towards sin and rebellion. They were better with idolatry. But in a sense, God brought them out of Babylon, but they still had Babylon left in them. And so they still went about their old ways in a lot of different ways. Read the book of Ezra. Read the book of Nehemiah. The people were still, in, still doing many of the same old things. And this went on for centuries. So there was this partial fulfillment of this new exodus. But it wasn't done yet, was it? That's where Jesus comes in. Amen? Amen. Let's look at, first of all, before we get to Jesus. Before Jesus comes along, who preceded him? John the Baptist, right? He understood what was going on. He understood what Isaiah was saying. He knew that there was going to be a new exodus. He knew that he was part of it. He says in John 1.23, John the Baptist said, I am the, one of, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. So John is the voice crying in the wilderness. And all four gospel writers affirm that John is the voice crying in the wilderness. And he's preparing the way of the Lord. Not just in a figurative fashion, but literally, Jesus, God in human flesh, is coming to the promised land. And John is preparing the way. How did he do it? He recognized that the people were in exile, not physical exile, because they're right there. They're right there in the physical promised land, but spiritually, they were in spiritual exile. They were hard-hearted. They needed to change. And so John goes out there and says, you need to repent. You need to repent and get ready for the coming of the Lord. And so when Jesus comes and his disciples, they've understood very clearly that Jesus was bringing about the new exodus. It's interesting in John chapter 9, you remember that story when Jesus takes up three disciples up on the mountain and he transfigures himself before them? And while he's up there, Jesus starts having a conversation with Elijah and Moses. Pretty fascinating. And Luke says, when Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It's interesting, in the Greek language, that word departure, you know what it literally is? Exodus. Exodus. They're hanging out on top of the mountain talking about Exodus. A new Exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish. So how did he do it? Let me give you three ways. There's a lot of whole, there's more things you could say, but let me just point out three things. First, Jesus was the fullest revelation of the glory of God. In the Exodus, the glory of God appeared among Israel by way of the cloud. Remember that? In the new Exodus, God himself appears in human flesh. John 1.14 says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
The glory of God was in our midst. Second, Jesus accomplished a greater deliverance. In the, in the Exodus story, God delivered them from physical bondage to Egypt. In the new Exodus, Jesus accomplished a greater, bond, a greater deliverance, excuse me, a spiritual deliverance. Jesus had this in his mind. Remember the crucifixion, the night before his crucifixion? Jesus sits down. He has the Passover meal, which commemorated what? The Exodus event, right? Jesus takes this meal and he transforms it. He says, that bread is my body, which is broken for you. That cup is the new covenant, which I'm sealing with my blood. He was about to accomplish a new Exodus. Not a bondage to Egypt, not a bondage to Babylon, but a bondage to sin that the whole human race lies under. And how does he do it? He does it by laying down his life as the true Passover lamb. When John the Baptist saw him, he says to Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus accomplished a greater deliverance, church. And then third, Jesus will bring us to the final promised land. In the Exodus, God brought them out of Egypt and He brought them into the land of Canaan. And that's where they've resided, right? But when Jesus returns, He's going to establish the new creation, what the book of Revelation calls the new Jerusalem. And we're going to live and reign with Him forever. You might say that's going to be the final Exodus. No more sin, no more death, no more Satan. All of it gone eternal life with God and His people. Pretty good news, amen? I don't know what else we can put, throw your way. As we close, let me invite you, though, to in, truly embrace the message of Christianity if you have never done so. You know, the message of Christianity is called the gospel. You know what the gospel, what that word means? Good news, right? All this stuff that Isaiah was foreshadowing Jesus brings to pass, it's all good news. Christianity, church, is about good news. And so if you want to become a Christian, it's about understanding this message and embracing it and giving your life to this good news. You say, well, okay, pastor, tell me exactly what is this good news. I want to understand what you're saying. Well, to understand it, actually, you need to first get that there's bad news. The bad news is that we have all sinned. God is a just and righteous God, and that there will be punishment for sin. But that bad news prepares our hearts to actually look for the good news, amen? It's that black velvet behind the diamond that helps the diamond to come out so beautifully, right? And so this good news is that Jesus comes along as God in human flesh, fully perfect, fully sinless. He lives the life that we shouldn't, or that we should, but we don't. And He dies on the cross to take our place as that Passover lamb. His blood was shed so that you and I might be forgiven. But here's how God wants you to respond. He wants you to humble yourself, to acknowledge your sinfulness and your need for a Savior who came to liberate and to deliver you. Let me ask you, what's stopping you from doing so if that's never taken place in your life? 
This is great news. Embrace it today. Don't let another day go by without receiving this great news. And for those who've received this good news, let me, let me encourage you to keep it good. Keep it good. We're bombarded with bad news and probably more so now than recent memory. And trust me, there's been times when I've been discouraged and, you know, being a pastor has been a little bit challenging these days and so forth. But these times make me all the more just hungry to embrace the good news even more. This is what I'm banking on. Not the passing things of this world. Let us enjoy and savor that good news. To do anything else is so foolish to me. I was thinking about it. It would be like somebody comes up to you and they say, you know what, I'm going to pay for you all expense paid vacation to any location in the world. You just name it. I will pay for you to go. And you walk around complaining that you burnt your toast this morning. You have this incredible good news, and yet you're focused on something that pales in comparison to this incredible, uh, momentous thing that has been put in your lap. Now trust me, I'm not minimizing the trials that we go through or the things that have been taking place in recent days. But what I am getting at is that the gospel, when it sinks deep into your soul, you see things differently. The good news trumps everything else. Everything else. And church, knowing what awaits us, we look forward to the return of the King. We look forward to that. And we bank on His track record that He did it in the days of Exodus. He predicted that He would do it with Jeremiah. And sure enough, He brings them out. Brings them back into Israel's days. He predicts the, the Messiah is going to come. Sure enough, He comes. And so you know what? There's one more thing He's going to do. He's going to come back. And so the church should bank on that and look forward to it and cry out with one voice, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Is that your heart today? May we be encouraged. May we be comforted by this incredible good news that Isaiah shares with us this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is indeed permanent. Thank you that it all just fits together and shows us your power, your love, your wisdom, and your incredible grace to us. Lord, help us to be people that are truly enthralled, captivated by the good news. May we not live as defeated and discouraged Christians, but be reminded, as Paul says in Romans 8, that we are more than conquerors. Not because we're optimistic, but because we're trusting in that incredible good news. Lord, help us to be joyful and filled with hope. And Lord, I pray that this word today would comfort where there is fear, where there's lack of faith, where there's worry, Lord, may we trust you. And Lord, I pray that for someone here today who's never placed their faith in Christ, may today be the day of salvation, a day when they embrace this good news for what it is, 
and give their life to it. We ask all of this in the wonderful, powerful, majestic, and matchless name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.